This episode is supported by Bento Box and Clover. There is no doubt that running a restaurant is a lot of hard work. Fortunately, Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need. Bento Box is an all-in-one platform for websites, online ordering, and marketing tools. Clover provides world-class point-of-sale and payment solutions. Integrating the two helps restaurants streamline operations and deliver an even better guest experience. Bento Box and Clover, the right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com better for more info. For me, my experience in the pandemic was like, restaurants are not stable. This is Chris Martin. I'm Chris. I run a microbakery in Charlottesville, Virginia, utilizing local produce and whatever farmers, foragers, and other people trade me. I first met Chris when we were both staging at a three Michelin star restaurant back in 2016. She was on the pastry side. I was on the savory side. Restaurants especially are not stable for employment, for like health and safety and to be self-employed during this period where people are really understaffed, really experiencing a lot of speed bumps in regards to supply chain and everything. To be able to still be working in the food world and still connected to it in different ways beyond even production, to be tied into it is great. This is Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna, and today we're talking about social media. The relationship between the restaurant industry and social media is complicated. It's never been easy to make it in the restaurant business, and today, good food is unfortunately rarely enough. More and more, it's all about photos. Social media has always loved food with hashtag chef getting 18 million hits and hashtag food blogger getting 4.3 billion hits. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for restaurants. And restaurant relationships with influencer partnerships and marketing are also very complicated. A restaurant order has come forward to say that influencers are already asking him for free food. And influencers have been known to abuse that opportunity and try to get meals for free from restaurants even when they don't really plan to create a lot of content around it. Influencers are even affecting the design of restaurants themselves. Many are adding elements like photo-friendly lighting and dynamic backgrounds. Social is even affecting the design, logistics, and production of food. TikTok is branching out. Yeah, that's right. Jumping into the food delivery service, like creating and selling recipes that have gone viral. TikTok viral recipes have been so popular for the platform that they have plans to start their own ghost kitchen. TikTok eventually plans to open more than a thousand kitchens by the end of next year. The pressures to have a social presence is felt by everyone, and restaurants are no exception. In this ever-changing landscape, so much of what is hip or cool or popular seems to be decided by double taps and followers. Despite the complicated mess that is social media, cooks and chefs are making it work for them. In this episode, we're talking to three different people who work in food, 
who each use social media for very different purposes, and that have had social media affect their identities as food professionals in three pretty different ways. It's my personal Instagram that I've had since high school. Chris has always been into baking, so much so that before she even started baking professionally, she made her Instagram handle Baker No Bakery. I was in high school making cakes and cookies, and I look back at them and they were atrocious. It's just not really where my talent lies. And so when I got to school and I saw all the cakes and like really got an, a peek at that cake and cookie industry, I was like, oh, I totally idolized fine dining and Michelin and all of those restaurants of execution. And I still do. I really still love and enjoy that world. Like I said at the beginning, Chris and I used to work together in the Bay Area at a fine dining place. We've kept up over the years via social media, and she's primarily been working in fine dining until... I experienced two really intense closures in Chicago, and my experience in San Francisco was amazing and incredible. Like, I was going to go to L.A. and work in another fine dining establishment, that was really like coming from the mentality of like what I should be doing in order to be a chef. And the, the key word there is should. The pressure that I put on myself to follow through with all of my dreams that I had. So I had quit my job at Murad in San Francisco with the intention of going to go work for my friend in Los Angeles. Cue pandemic. A lot of cooks had to make some pretty shitty decisions during the pandemic. Social media was one of the ways that cooks and restaurant folks pivoted, like Chris. A buddy of mine told me that a coworker of his didn't even go back to work in the kitchen because he had started a TikTok during the pandemic and was able to make more money with that after a year than he could cooking. That's definitely an exception, not the rule. But there are stories from all over of cooks using social media to further their careers during the pandemic. Welcome back to my channel. Today's an exciting day because my dad just flew back from Guyana. So we got some really nice treats that he brought. I want to kind of open it and show you because there's some things I don't know what it is. It's going to be a surprise for both of us. An aha moment for me was like during the pandemic. This is Devin. My name is Devin Rajkumar, born and raised in Toronto. I was born to Guyanese parents. And for the past 13 years, I've been cooking professionally in the city of Toronto. He goes by the handle Chef Dev and Chef Devin on different platforms, and he shares tips and recipes. And he's been a judge on Food Network's Firemasters. I did a, a video where my dad came back from Guyana with like a suitcase of like mangoes and like thyme and all kinds of stuff. Oh my God. Epic. These, in my opinion, are the best mangoes in the world, but I want you to tell me what type of mangoes these are. Comment below and let me know what you think this mango is. And I'm sitting there unpacking it, and then someone sent me a photo of their daughter sitting on the floor of the family room watching on the big screen this video, and it just blew me away. So at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout the pandemic, that was kind of an aha moment for me too, that listen, I have people following me, people see me as a role model, so what type of example am I gonna put out there? I'll be honest with you, when I started cooking, and for many years, I didn't know what my lane was. I didn't know where I belonged. I kept positioning myself as this world-inspired chef. Being trained with the food dudes, we did sushi, we did tacos, we did classical cuisine, we did beef wellingtons, we did everything there. So I didn't really know what my path was, what my lane was, and I didn't feel that Guyanese food, 
years ago, I didn't feel like it had enough. Like I didn't know that Dahl and Rice and Pepper Pot could stand up to, you know, French classical or like all the beautiful Italian food that's so popular. I didn't, I didn't feel like it could. The more I deep dived into my culture and the food, and I filmed Chef Dev Taste Guyana, which is on YouTube and it's doing really well. I mean, I'm just so in love with my culture now, and I feel that it can stand up to all these amazing cuisines that are out there. And that's why I feel like it's my responsibility to promote it. And the best thing about it is that it is my lane. Like I'm Guyanese, no one can ever take that away from me. So I just feel like it's really important to showcase that, but it feels like home now. I feel like I have a lane. The pandemic was a wake-up call to Devin and how he interacted with his community via social, but also how he presented himself as a cook and the stories that he told. But it was just the beginning for Chris and her journey. I didn't have unemployment. I needed something to do with my time. I'm a person who likes to be occupied constantly. So I launched a menu with sourdough. I started in my parents' house where I pushed out around 400 pounds of flour and I ended up just selling to a bunch of my friends and family from the years that I lived there. There was no yeast anywhere, so everything that I was doing was naturally leavened. It was super simple, naturally leavened sourdough, focaccia with herbs that I was growing, as well as fruit tarts. Well, I'd prep and wake up at like 3 a.m., do the bake, get stuff going for the next day, and just like roll through like one menu collecting information on DMs and recording it on spreadsheets. And it was just, everything was building as I was going along. Like every week was a new adventure. And I was like, oh, well, here's another layer to the business. And it was never anything that was like specifically planned. It just developed. There are some pop-ups that I do like 180 to 200 pieces of pastries. And with like multiple components, multiple layers and steps, dehydrating, rehydrating, harvesting. Like I grow a lot of the micros outside. So like making sure my plants don't die. And it's... <laughs> All of that, the way that I view my career and the way I view how this business has grown has been like steps that have been building into each other and taking skill sets from one and applying it to the other. And that's, I think, like the most sustainable way to go about it. Like you can call it the bootstrap, you can call it whatever. I don't know who needs to hear this, but if the stake can find the time to rest, so can you. Okay, uh, my name is Hanalei. I'm just a line cook slash kitchen lead semi sous chef. Most people know me as Lady Line Cook on Instagram. And her hilarious kitchen culture account has over 30,000 followers. I started the account, I only made memes and I didn't show my face and no one knew my name. People even accused me of being a man because my handle was Lady Line Cook, but people were like, I bet it's a man who runs this account. It was just funny, and then then I like showed my face, but just in like a picture, and I never showed my face on my stories, and I didn't talk on my stories, and then for a while, I didn't want to like show up on video, and then I like slowly inched my way out of my comfort zone. So it's it's not this like grand cannonball. I took ages to get to like five thousand followers, and it felt like it took even longer to get from 5,000 to 10,000 and like I was posting all this stuff and like doing all the right things and like I would watch people go from like two to 10,000 overnight. You watch all these growth stories but then you realize like true sustainable growth comes from like just slowly 25 people a day for a year is 10,000 followers. You don't realize that it's not sexy it's just like that's the most sustainable way. 
For Hannah Lay, it was a slow process of getting out of her comfort zone and just being herself on social. And as she did that, more people started following along. Can we normalize saying heard in like everyday conversations, right? Because if the line cooks have gotten one thing right, it's just hearing someone, you heard what they said, you don't need to smile and nod, you don't need to come up with a response, you just say heard. Because it's not rude, and it's like, it's like I heard what you said, and that's it. And putting the emphasis on the social part of social media is something that Chris has been working on. The algorithm loves a face. The algorithm loves varying, like, stories, reels, all this other stuff. And without bringing that human aspect to it, it's really, really, really difficult to gain traction on Instagram. And it's really weird because, like, I mean, even this week, like, sometimes I'll post a menu and I'll get, like, 60 likes. I posted a menu this morning and it's 25 likes or something. And I'm like, nah, okay, whatever, we're here now. And then, like, if it's me, a picture of my face... Um, and then, I mean, at the same time, I'm also talking about the T-shirts that I dyed and I'm selling to give money back. It does so much more numbers. Like, <laughs> it's because there's a face and because there's all this stuff. So it's difficult to create content and gain traction in business if you are not presenting that human side. It's a very strategic approach to what I post. Being able to post a menu and then get it into the stories. And then at the same time, throughout the week, I'll post prep for the menu items on the stories to get people excited about the process and also to be able to tag various farms or creators that I'm working into this week's menu to tie them into it that then they will share and they get their own content then my stuff is shared to like more groups of people and then as a result responding to people's comments or responses to stories to posts and then if I have the time to work in the process reels, which is where like I tend to go for is here's the start to finish or at least like the mixing method for this one thing and how I execute it to be able to also tie in that reel component because reels are weird. It'll do numbers like weeks later and I'm like, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm not opposed to dancing for the internet. I'll dance for my cat. It's... It's mixing in all these different human aspects as well as trying to be engaging for people. It is so much work to be active on social and to grow a following. And as Chris mentioned, sometimes it's not something that has an immediate benefit for a career or a business. And not only is it a lot of work, but the truly successful accounts are the ones that are putting themselves out there. I batch all my content on my only day off. In order to grow on social media, you do have to spend a lot of time. And you have to be, like, interactive with your audience and all that stuff. Here's Hannah Lay again. Someone on my Ask Me Anything asked, like, what's it like being an Instagram influencer? And I was like, oh, my God, never use that word on me again. <laughs> like, there's one brand that, like, referred to me as an Instagram influencer. And I'm like, please don't use that word. <laughs> I was like, I'm a line cook. And I post about being a line cook. And for some reason, people want to hear what I have to say. When I first started cooking, I was like looking for memes about being a chef that I could share. There's a lot that were about like hating your life and smoking weed. And I was just like, these aren't, this isn't where it's at. I want to just make some memes about, just wholesome memes about working in a kitchen. So that's kind of how it started. Then once the whole Reels thing came out, I actually didn't jump on Reels for about a year because I, I didn't like my face. I was really self-conscious. I didn't want to be on video. I spent months just like opening up the app 
trying to make a reel and then I wouldn't make a reel. I'd be like, I can't do this. I can't do this. So I did that for a few months. And then finally, one day I was like, I got to do this real thing. Like I have, I had so many ideas too, but I just, I wasn't executing them. And then that was, that was about a year ago. Like last summer I started making videos and then it really, now it's like, it's like all I do in my free time. I just make these videos. These apps run off the creativity and ideas being put on them by creators. Trends are driven by algorithms that decide what gets pushed out there more often than other things. And there's a lot of questionable bias that comes out of that when it comes to the kinds of people and the kinds of content that get the most attention. And when someone's livelihood, whether that's selling pastries or getting money from brands, is based off of follower count or engagement rate or people just seeing the content, it gets really frustrating for small creators. By and large, these apps wouldn't exist without the content users put out there. Things like YouTube and TikTok have been paying users on a views basis. Instagram recently started their own version of a creator program. But what does that money really look like for people who are putting out a lot of content? For Hanalei... I just do it for fun. Like, I recently, I started monetizing reels, but it's pennies. (laughs) So it's like, I mean... I spend a ridiculous amount of time on it. So I'm like, I could at least make a little bit of money back. If I did the per hour math, it'd probably be way below minimum wage, but I do it for fun. So speaking of money and getting paid, we'll be back after a quick break. We put a whole lot of work into these episodes, so much research and interviews, and only a fraction of it makes it into the show. Ever wonder what happens to the rest? Well, if you go to patreon.com slash copper and heat, you can see. Our patrons giving $5 a month and more get access to some really fun special perks like extended interviews and merch, all while supporting the work we do at Copper and Heat. If you can't help us out financially, we totally get it. There are other ways to help, like by sharing the show with your friends or your coworkers or your mom, whoever. It really helps us out. Join the Copper and Heat Patreon at patreon.com slash copper and heat. What I got from some of the savory sous chefs was, like, concern over the fact that this could be, like, taking a step back. Here's Chris. It wasn't, like, anything derogatory in any way. At the time, I was, like, defensive about it. But really thinking about it over time, it's like, yeah, they're genuinely concerned. They see a cook coming in here with a pretty intense resume and then leaving an institution like that to do something that's extremely non-traditional. We're in a moment of upheaval right now. As cooks and others from the restaurant industry leave traditional jobs and start their own things for various purposes, there are a lot of questions. Ultimately, what does doing a pop-up or doing things virtually mean for the craft of cooking? So one of my best friends from school, Josh Ulmer, he's the the pastry chef at Damian in LA, which is where I was going to go work for him. And I'll go and like stage and hang out with him because it's like in the restaurant, that's the time that I get to see him. So like I'll hang out, I'll do some production. Ultimately, I'm just spending time with him and seeing our creative processes and seeing the way that he approaches prep and the way that I approach prep. I find myself comparing a lot because I'm no longer in this world in that way. And like I'm, I'll eyeball how much gelatin I'll add to a pastry cream recipe. That is insane, insane behavior. And that some of that comes with comfortability, but at the same time, like the standardization and the perfection and the supreme, beautiful execution of fine dining, it's, it's wild. 
And it's been now a constant redefinition for me of like, what does that mean to you now? So I just want to preface by saying that I haven't spent as long in a professional kitchen as many other cooks who may be listening to this or many other cooks out there. Very important that I say that. Here's Devin again. Having said that, I think it's important to define the role of a chef and what makes a chef. This celebrity chef title that I get these days so frequently, a lot of people introduce me as celebrity chef Devin Rajkumar. It's a little bit of a bittersweet thing. I mean, at the beginning of my career, I thought it'd be a great thing to have. But now I just feel like it negates a lot of the hard work that I've done. Anybody can go online right now and call themselves chef and put up videos. But it's like I've like I've bled and I've sweat and I've like there have been tears in my eyes over the years with events where you know I've been doing it for for over 10 years and I've led a lot of teams into service. I think it's really important to define the role of a chef. For a lot of cooks, not just Evan, this is one of the real challenges to the internet. Food is an inherently sensual thing. Sure, it needs to look visually appealing, but that doesn't necessarily say that you are good at the craft of cooking. Does it taste good? Does it smell good? And when you're primarily practicing your craft virtually, there are a lot of questions as to who is really a chef, and how do you define that? Which can be really exciting that we no longer have to define chef in the traditional way, and a lot of the gatekeeping of the title of chef doesn't have to exist anymore. But it also brings up some interesting questions about who has mastery over the craft of cooking. For a long time in Toronto, I felt lesser than, and I felt like a little bit of imposter syndrome because even when I left the Food Dudes in 2012 and I went to Lux Appliance Studio and I started working there, my chefs at Food Dudes were like, man, Dev, why are you leaving? Like, we're blowing up right now, this and that. Like, why are you going to do this type of work? Why are you going to go do demonstrations for like other people? And like, why don't you just come stay in the trenches here with us? But I wanted to to, to do a change. I thought it'd be a great opportunity for me. And looking back now, it was that role that really set me up for so many different things that I've been able to do. And and there used to be some tension back there, but everyone has their own different, unique path. Reading comments that I get on Instagram is very near and dear to my heart because it's the very first negative DM I ever got. I'm giving it a 5 out of 10 just because it's not very creative. And also, it would literally take less time to unfollow me than to leave this DM. I get like false accusations of people who are like, you obviously don't work at a real restaurant. I'm like, here's Hannah Lay again. You think that's going to hurt me? I do work at a real restaurant full time still. I get quite a lot of comments that say like, you obviously have way too much free time on your hands. So you're obviously not a real chef. And I'm like, okay, like you can say that, but I batch all my content on my only day off. And then I worked six, 10 hour shifts. And then I post one a day. Like I'm, I don't know what to say to you, man. Like i I cook at a restaurant. I even posted videos from the line. Like, I just made a video about about hater comments, but most most of them were about my appearance. And I literally posted. I was like, if that's what you're, if you're gonna go for my appearance, you obviously have nothing to say. I have not hit the perfect bake yet. Like, and it's been two years. There's always something that's a little bit. Mm. Here's Chris, and it's okay for people to know that. Like, it's I'm not never hope to have that that facade of perfection there for my own existence. Because I don't see myself going to work in New York or any of these Michelin cities to be a three Michelin star pastry chef and going for James Beard Awards and things. That was a dream that I had that was based in ego and in the world that I was working in. 
so I had this looming pressure that I put on myself when I was like, God, I was like 19. And so now I like in my head, I always go back to that. A lot of the inadequacies or separation between cooks and chefs and everything, this is just my general mental health self-talk is really self-created. It is projection. It is something that needs to be addressed within the self. So for me, I can create the experience that blind cooks or fine dining chefs see me as separate and as like an anarchist in the system, ultimately, because I'm not rejoining the labor force in a traditional way. And I haven't experienced that at all. And ultimately, if there has been anything negative from anybody, it hasn't stuck because I also understand that that's their own existence, what they're putting out. Like, I'm I'm, going to let you do that. I'm not going to disturb my peace over any negativity, really. And now in Charlottesville, addressing my big city bias, uh, which I describe as coming from big cities, you value and think that these places are executing at different or better or higher levels. And coming into Charlottesville and being exposed to all these incredible creators who are making incredibly tasty things without Michelin stars. The best thing for sure the community and like having a platform of the right people you could have thousands and thousands of followers but they're like i don't know they just follow you because you're cute or whatever and they don't care what you have to say so i think it's it's less to do with how many followers and more like what their interests are and how engaged they are and you know how how they interact with you and your content and i think somehow the group that's been curated that i have like I don't know how the algorithm does its thing, but it just shows my videos to like line cooks and then the line cooks think it's funny because they relate to it. And so they follow me. Um, And so just, just the group that I have right now, like they're super supportive. They're super awesome. They like leave me DMs to say like how much of an impact I'm making. Those always warm my heart. I like screenshot all of them and keep them in a folder because literally your brain wants to remember the haters, but, and it forgets all the the amazing people who make you do what you do. So I'm like, I gotta remember all the good people too. That's why I do what I do. It's been really beautiful to create a community within microbakeries across the country, as well as people who I've met working in restaurants and also the local Charlottesville community, which has been incredibly open and super excited about the food I'm making, which is wild to experience. Small business, has to compete with big business. And so there, you, people tend to create such an expectation for themselves, for their content and their product. And I think like what customers value about small business is the fact that there are real people doing these things. And the way to stand out is be like, hey, I'm a real person. Like you're supporting me as an artist and me as a person as opposed to like selling perfection. It's so cool. And we've created like such a, an interconnected community of micro businesses and small business owners that are supporting each other and like in turn creating content by buying their stuff and talking about it online and having this engagement and this rapport with the interaction between customers and followers or whatever. It's, it's so human. And at the same time, it's, it's so interconnected in a way that people want to be a part of. Social media has opened up a lot of opportunities for home cooks to learn. It's created ways for chefs to start businesses without having a brick and mortar space. Certainly, there are many businesses that live and die by their social media. To be transparent, Copper and Heat makes a lot of our income from social media management. 
There's a lot of downsides that we're all very well aware of, but maybe with a little bit more thought and some attention to what a person lets through their filter, social can be more than a time-sucking black hole. You can find Chris and her bakes at Baker No Bakery. You can find Chef Devin at Chef Dev or Chef Devin on all platforms. And the ever hilarious Hanalei is at Lady Lime Cook. Follow us in your favorite podcast app and on various social platforms at Copper and Heat to keep up to date as we release more episodes throughout the season. And we always love hearing from you, so send us a message on our website or in our DMs. This episode was produced by Rachel Palmer and me, Katie Osuna. Scoring, sound design, and story editing was by Ricardo Osuna. Mixing and mastering was done by Adrian Lilly. Thanks so much for listening.